Hello, and welcome to episode 104 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a policy analyst, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Maurice Shema about his book, Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. Maurice Shema is a journalist and staff writer for The Marshall Project. His reporting on the criminal justice system has been published by The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, and Mother Jones. He lives in Austin, Texas, a place I've visited many times, where he and his wife organized the Insider Prize, a fiction and essay contest for incarcerated writers, sponsored uh, by American Short Fiction. He's also the author of the book, which we'll be discussing today, Let the Lord Sort Them, published by Crown Publishing. Welcome to the D. Incarceration Nation podcast, Maurice. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, I always start with the same first question, which is kind of the comic book origin story question. How did you get from wherever you started to where you were working with the Marshall Project and writing a book about the death penalty? Sure. Um, So I grew up in Texas and uh, really did not think much about incarceration or criminal justice um, when I was younger. And when I uh, first finished college, I moved back here uh, mainly to be a musician and um, just fell into a job uh, working for a tiny little nonprofit that's called the Texas After Violence Project. Um, It's a, uh, it was you know, tiny and and was founded by a um, defense lawyer who worked in death penalty cases who wanted to build an archive of uh, first person testimonies around the death penalty. So family members of people who had been executed, family members of murder victims, um, prosecutors, defense lawyers, etc. And as Part of that work, I uh, basically drove around Texas um, with a video camera and a partner, and we would interview people about their experiences with the death penalty. And I was just very suddenly immersed in this world that I had known nothing about and found very fascinating and very emotionally haunting. It was much more um, viscerally intense, I think, than the sort of more abstract uh, research I had done as, as a college student, you know, the sort of abstract theoretical reading about things. Um, uh, it just felt like, oh, this is real life now. And um, I spent a year doing that and realized sort of through that work that I wanted to be a journalist, that that was kind of my um, way of contributing. I really liked writing and thought that I could sort of use the fact that I liked writing to try to contribute to sort of larger public conversations about policy and politics and various things. Um, so uh, after that job, I started just interning at uh, various small news outlets. Uh, I um, interned for a long time at the Texas Tribune, which is a great nonprofit news outlet in Austin. Um, and then, you know, because I had had that early uh, experience, um, you know, driving around the state and, and interviewing all these prosecutors and defense lawyers, I just sort of knew who to call on various stories and would sort of see stories in the criminal justice sphere before others. And um, would, would pitch those stories. And, uh, and I should say that often when I was doing those interviews, um, you know, a prosecutor would tell me about their tactic for convincing juries to sentence people to death, or a defense lawyer would take me into the sort of arcane world of habeas law. And so I, uh, would sort of just have little tidbits of, of insight into how this whole system worked. And so then as I became a journalist, I would, uh, you know, use, um, you know, use use sort of a new story about an individual case or something to uh, learn about another kind of systemic issue, and over time, just sort of built up the different issues that I that I knew a little bit about. Um, and then one day, a fellow reporter said, "Hey, I've heard about this thing called the Marshall Project. Uh, it's just been announced. It hasn't launched yet." Um, I went to the website and it really just had an email address, info at themarshallproject.org, and I emailed it. And that led into conversations with the editors there and eventually to a job. And I have now been there for about six years and um, expanded out from just working on death penalty stories. I mean, do a lot of different stories about the whole range of, of the criminal justice system, um, but have sort of kept on the death penalty beat as well. And that, of course, led up to the death penalty book. And, uh, you know, you work with some great folks. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Marshall Project in addition to what you've already said? 
Absolutely. Um, so the Marshall Project is a, a small, well, I, I always used to say small, and now, you know, there's, I think, more than 30 people working there. So it's growing. Um, it's a nonprofit news outlet. We just do um, criminal justice reporting. So, uh, you know, some of us are more focused on policing. Some of us are more focused on courts and prosecutors, um, uh, prison conditions. I have a colleague, uh, Carrie Blakinger, who is sort of become the, the, um, I would say the leading expert on how to report on prison conditions. She focuses on Texas where we both live. Um, but we now have a staff of reporters that's scattered around the country. We have, you know, tech people and, and the nonprofit, um, you know, development people too, sort of making all the wheels turn. And we just sort of churn out um, investigative stories about the system, but also more um, kind of data driven reporting and also uh, kind of more magazine style features, which is more what I specialize in. Um, all of which is towards the goal of um, sort of the mission statement, which is to create and sustain a, a sense of national urgency around criminal justice. So we don't purport to know what all the solutions are, but we report aggressively on the problems and also present readers with, you know, some of the solutions as they develop as experiments, you know, throughout the country. You actually kind of jumped my question there. My next question was going to be, do you have any good Carrie Blakinger stories? And <laughs> you got to go. <laughs> oh, man. Carrie is. So Carrie's been at the Marshall Project for, oh, I want to say maybe more than a year. Um, but in my head, she's still fairly new, but that's not really fair. Uh, and she came to us from the Houston Chronicle, having, you know, done everything from um, convinced uh uh, you know, through her reporting, basically made it so that um, men in Texas prisons were getting dentures. Uh, many of them had been living for years, basically just having liquid food, which I found just a really kind of visceral uh, thing. But but all the time we get on the phone and she'll just say, oh, I just got this text from a guy inside or, oh, I just got this, uh, this um, video from this guy inside and look what it shows. And it's just like so out there. And it's like, how did... A, how do you know this person? How did like how do you have this whole source network of incarcerated people with cell phones who are sending you stuff? Um, I, I am kind of consistently blown away by how she uh, manages to use the sort of insights from her own time incarcerated to drive uh, the reporting and the kind of sideways creative ways that she gets information. Um, it's really pretty amazing, um, and I don't know when she sleeps, frankly. <laughs> I'm always uh, worried because she gets so much bad news, which, I, you know, I mean, working in Texas, I mean, in Michigan, we've been able to get some things done in Texas that can get pretty, as we'll talk about more in a second, uh, can be, I lived in Texas for a long time, can be pretty, you know, a lot of the identity seems to be tied up and kind of tough on crime. Uh, how do you kind of get through the years uh, doing this work in Texas uh, with not always seeing, you know, a lot of results in terms of change? Well, I will say that when I first started reporting on the Texas criminal justice system, it actually didn't look so dark in the sense that, you know, we did have uh, one of the highest per capita rates of incarceration and the prison system was, you know, the prisons were, were huge and, um, and there was plenty of injustice, but at the same time, there really was a movement in the Texas legislature starting around 2007, 2008 to try to turn a corner. And, you know, there were a handful of bills in those years that kind of chipped away at at least the incarceration of people for low level nonviolent crimes. And, and, and even more than that, the, 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 bills were themselves the product of collaboration between Democrats and Republicans. Texas was one of the first states where you saw the kind of bipartisan criminal justice reform idea uh, developed uh, before it went up to Washington and turned into the First Step Act. And, you know, Texas was the laboratory for all the kinds of compromises and um, issues that, that come up in those in those debates. Um, that was around 2008, nine. And then you got into 2010, 11, 12, 13, when I was really getting into this reporting. And there were a lot of bills that um, didn't decarcerate, but they sought to protect innocent people who were accused of crimes. Um, there was something called the Michael Morton Act, which was all about prosecutors handing over um, uh, uh, information to defense lawyers before trial. There were um, bills to um, make it easier for people convicted on fraudulent science to have their claims heard in appeals courts. There was a lot going on and it, you know, obviously it left a lot to be desired, but it, it felt like, oh, things can happen here. And I want to say, you know, as that bipartisan criminal justice conversation moved up to Washington, it sort of stopped here. And 
Uh, I don't know the full picture of why that is. Carrie might have some insights, um, but it kind of feels like a lot of other red states started passing, um, you know, criminal justice reform bills and Texas, you know, having lived on the fumes of, of being the leader and sort of um, celebrating itself for being the leader in this realm for a while, uh, you know, sort of stopped playing any role in it. And so now we're in this kind of weird place where the prison system is still huge and the problems are still intense. There's a few more protections for defendants than maybe exist in other states, but um, uh, it, it's still, I, I still hold out hope that it's a place where a lot can happen when the right players sort of all come together um, because I've seen it happen in the past. Before we get to the book, can you tell us about the Insider Prize? Oh, yeah. Uh, so the Insider Prize is a contest for incarcerated writers uh, to write fiction and uh, essays. And I work on it with my wife, Emily, who is herself a fiction writer. And the idea for it actually came from a really brilliant, innovative um, writer named Deb Olin Unferth, who she's a um, creative writing professor at the University of Texas in Austin, but she separately started teaching creative writing classes um, at, I think, the Connolly unit uh, a couple hours south of Austin, a TDCJ prison. And she has this um, really exciting sort of network of writers there who have kind of nurtured their talents and created workshops together and are themselves even going on to teach other incarcerated people sort of writing skills. And uh, Deb said, you know, I have these these guys, these writers, you know, often when, you know, you want to submit work to a magazine or a literary journal, you have to use the internet and uh, they don't have access to some of that. There's one really great, um, well-known writing contest uh, for incarcerated people put on by PEN America, but uh, we just need there to be more things that, that these uh, writers can submit to. Um, and Deb and, and I knew each other through working with this small, um, really great literary journal here in Austin called American Short Fiction. And they just they agreed to sponsor the contest. And so now um, what happens is I think the we're coming on the fifth year of it. Um, and each year we get dozens of submissions from Texas prisons and jails and even federal facilities within the state. Uh, maybe someday we could go national, but keeping it to Texas was what felt sort of manageable when we started. And uh, we have a panel of, you know, readers who uh, go through the work and then the actual winners are selected by a guest judge. And the guest judges have been like real well-known, exciting writers like Joyce Carol Oates and uh, Justin Torres. Uh, Mitchell S. Jackson is going to be our, our judge uh, this coming year. And uh, so, yeah, it's been an incredible uh, experience. I, I think the 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 thing to say about it is that so much of the reporting we do at the Marshall Project and just my daily life uh, in in immersing myself in this system is so depressing. And it's so much about interviewing people inside about the problems they're facing with being in prison and jail and um, the injustices of their, you know, criminal cases, etc. The emphasis is on the, the, the problems, which I think is right, but it also uh, can make it feel like that's all there is to it, that that's the entire experience of being in prison. And um, I have now come to see through this contest just how much sort of incredible creative energy is inside of these facilities that is being kind of wasted as people spend their years incarcerated. And um, this contest just feels like a, a small way to continue sort of highlighting for the public the fact that it's not all doom and gloom because there's human beings there and anywhere there's human beings, there's sort of hope and creativity and really powerful uh, communication. So um uh, that's our, our kind of small uh, contribution to the larger effort. And uh, I've been really proud of it and excited excited for the future of it. So, you know, with all the work you've done and with the Insider Prize, you might have some insight into this. Recently, there was a poetry magazine that put out an episode, an issue of all form, of all currently incarcerated, I believe, uh, mm -hmm. po poets. And uh, there was a huge backlash because a couple of the poets happened to have done something that people perceived to be uh, kind of beyond the pale. Um, you know, I feel like one of the real problems with uh, kind of mainstream uh, press is that there aren't a lot of voices, uh, you know, incarcerated voices and formerly incarcerated voices included. Uh, do you have any thoughts about like that controversy and kind of bridging that gap since you do work in this area? I, I have so many thoughts. And so it's just a matter <laughs> of, uh, it's just a matter of them, uh, you know, organizing them in my brain very quickly so that they sound logical and not just like a, a total sort of explosion of, of feelings. 
Um, yeah, I was very troubled by that whole, uh, you know, episode in which the poetry magazine um, was sort of hounded by, I guess what you could call literary Twitter, which, um, I, as I said before, my wife is a fiction writer, we're very kind of connected to the world of literary writing. And so um, I, I, I follow a lot of people on what you could call literary Twitter. And there was this whole sense that poetry magazine was maybe doing the right thing by highlighting the voices of incarcerated people until there was a person that these that these um, uh, you know commentators, people at other literary magazines felt did something so bad that they should be uh, not included in this collection and that their poetry should be, should, should be cast away. Um, and and I found the uh, sort of letters that were coming out about this to have really, um, frankly, kind of tortured logic. Like the, there was a sort of a, a lack of clarity about what they were even trying to say because there was this sense of like, well, the man who did this really terrible thing, he's white. So now we're going to argue that because he's white, he's taking the place that should have gone to a black and or brown incarcerated person. Um, but then I sort of found myself wondering, well, what if it was a, you know, a black prisoner whose crime was a terrible rape and murder and, uh, uh, you know, but that's not all he's ever done. And, and, and now he has sort of really incredible poetry or fiction to share with the world. Like, how do we navigate that as readers and as uh, the public? And I think what, you, what I saw in that response is this idea that for all the talk of criminal justice reform, there's an incredible amount of work to be done in terms of the kind of philosophical, um, you know, turning of the Titanic in a new direction, you know, because uh, we can all say that we're for reform and it's easy to feel like you're for reform when it's about letting someone who was arrested for some marijuana out of prison. But then as you inch up towards crimes that were violent, we still have a gut instinct of revenge against someone, um, especially when it's a sexual crime, even more when it's a sexual crime against a child, as I believe it was in, in this poet's case. Um, and uh, I think that as a society, we have to sort of really have these debates and 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 be clear about what we're saying. Is it about race? Is it about mercy? What are the different lines that we're going to try to draw in terms of our collective sympathy? And should we be even drawing those lines? Or should we say uh, sympathy is always something um, that we should be able to offer to people no matter what they've done? Um, I should say that, uh, you know, institutions like the Marshall Project or American Short Fiction or this poetry magazine also have a delicate um, uh, road to travel in that when they publish work by an incarcerated person, they have to choose whether or not to include what that person is incarcerated for. And they also know that any reader could Google uh, what this person did as well. So even if they don't publish it, there are roots for, unless, you know, people go by pseudonyms, um, which has its own issues, uh, you know, their names are public and their crimes are public and people can, can look into it. And I felt like in the poetry magazine's case, they didn't publish what the person did and people Googled it and then they got very angry. At the Marshall Project, we tend to publish what they did. And although we've gotten a lot of flack for that, I also see the ways in which readers then don't feel duped. And there isn't a sense that they're just going to go, um, you know, Google what someone did and then get mad at the Marshall Project for not being direct about it. So, you know, these, these are very complicated questions. And that, uh, that poetry magazine, you know, incident was kind of like a flashpoint showing just how complicated they remain. Um, can I ask you how you felt about it? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I mean, as a formerly incarcerated person uh, with one of the, the you know, an, an offense like that, it was uh, it was interesting to watch. Uh, you know, I mean, I feel like we we re we really either need to decide whether we think people are more than their worst moments and that people can change or we don't. You know, uh, if we don't, then, you know, we need to be pretty clear about that and just, you know, basically lock up everyone forever or whatever we're going to do. And if we are going to change, we should start investing in that change and start trying to ensure that people come back better than what, they, you know, than where they left, you know, or, or, or however we can create change as opposed to uh, lock people into kind of one moment in time forever or multiple moments in time. I'm not trying to forgive anything bad that anyone did. Uh, you know, I think accountability is really important. You know, I've tried to put that up front in my own work. 
Uh, and I, I agree it's a complicated thing, but, you know, part of the question I asked was also about the place for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people to uh, have voices in that process and in those discussions. Did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that uh, it doesn't work unless they have a voice in it because they're, you know, people who have been incarcerated for, and, and let's just set aside, um, you know, small drug crimes where as a society, we've almost even moved on from the idea that these are, are violations of a social order. I mean, let's sort of just talking about uh, sort of serious crimes of violence that everyone sort of generally agrees were extraordinarily harmful uh, to, to an individual. Um, y- you know, there's no one way forward. And I think that uh, people who have been incarcerated and who have committed these crimes sort of know the most intimately what accountability looks like for themselves, right? I mean, I I think a a myth about the criminal justice system that I had before going into it, as maybe if you asked me when I was in high school or something, I would have said, oh, that that people don't have remorse. And it was almost like a cliche of, of court reporting that it would always say, like, the the defendant showed no emotion as he was sentenced to so many years in, in prison. <laughs> yeah, I mean, now that's that because, I, yeah, that's because people are totally shell-shocked when they're standing yeah. up. I've been there. <laughs> it's funny, shell-shocked and remorse and um, shell-shocked and um, psychopathic look the same on your face in that moment, right? I mean, there's no, it's just such like, there's so much like sort of pop um, or like um, in, instinct psychology that we apply to these situations that doesn't have any bearing on reality. And in my actual experience reporting on the criminal justice system, I see remorse everywhere. People are constantly talking about um, how horrible they feel about what they've done and, 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 and simultaneous to feeling like the system treated them poorly, right? That both things can be true at the same time. And uh, if we really engage incarcerated people on um, and make them feel like they don't have to be defensive and angry and can just sort of be open and thoughtful about accountability. You see that some of these, um, you, you can you can actually like get into a real kind of conversation. I mean, uh, one anecdote that just comes to mind is uh, I was working with an incarcerated writer on his own writing. Um, he was writing essays about his own experiences. He had been convicted of a uh, murder that had gotten him sent to death row. Um, and there was no doubt about his guilt. And um, in his writing, he was just not addressing the crime at all. And I said to him, you don't have to address it, but I'm curious just between us why you're not. And he explained that he felt like no matter what he said, uh, people would respond as readers, um, you know, really sort of negatively and and, and not uh, take him at face value and sort of always be looking for ways to turn him into a monster if he sort of opened that door. And uh, my thought was, well, like you can't even engage that conversation unless you sort of think about it openly and in public. And of course, you don't have to. There's no, um, there's yeah, no. Yeah, it's kind uh, of a weird. Obligation. It's kind of a weird. You know, it's kind of a weird deal. You know, I mean, I, I pretty much put it out there. It's like in my profiles. It's on everything I do. Mm. But at the same time, it's totally exhausting. You know, I mean, it's. Uh, and I don't mean that in the sense that I don't want to be accountable. I mean that in the sense that it's you know used in every possible way, in every you know, it it, it it's uh, you know, not everything I'm talking about is about that. <laughs> you know, you're totally like- right. No, you're totally right. And and I, I think that there's a it's worth drawing some lines here. I mean, I've met formerly incarcerated people who go on to work in the world of criminal justice advocacy, and um, their their former incarceration and the thing they were incarcerated for is just sort of like a snippet of their bigger biography of what drove them to the subject. And I don't think that it has any role in, you know, it, I think it, it must be incredibly exhausting to have to bring it up over and over again and have people ask you about it. In the case I'm thinking about, it was, you know, it's also, it's also re-traumatizing, you know, I mean, you're, you're it's totally re-traumatizing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You're, you know, people don't understand that there's a lot of pain in the process of coming back from this stuff and in working through all of your issues and having to constantly go back to the, to that place and being asked to do it in a way that's usually pejorative where someone's trying to make you look bad is, is, you know, really it's, it's tough, man. I mean, it's not, it's not an easy, it's not an easy gig. <laughs> yeah. I don't doubt it. I, and, and I can't speak to it directly as a, you know, or in a first person way given, um, but, but I, you know, I, I, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to tease out or I'm curious about is, um, 
you know, there are probably, I'm curious, are there times in your life where you're sort of out in the world doing your work and the fact that you're formerly incarcerated or committed a crime or anything doesn't even come up at all, right? Like that you can just sort of have an independent experience totally beyond that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes, come up? you know, it, but you know, it, you know, people, there's a lot of people who, you know, it's part of the identity and, 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 and part of what you you do for your job and part of what you do for, you know, in every, you know, you're representing formerly incarcerated people on panels. And, you know, so it's, it's a big part of a lot of what you do. And then when you're not doing it, sometimes it becomes a big part of what you do, too. And, you know, sometimes you do get some moments where it's not. And that's nice. So I won't lie. Uh, that's a, a nice break. But, you know, I mean, I think, you know, it's tough. You know, it's just a tough. It, like I said, it just gets exhausting sometimes because you're like, it's not that you don't, you know, it's just that, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're not really, uh, you know, totally engaged in the process of reliving the, 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 the worst thing you've ever done or the worst things you've ever done. You know, that doesn't mean that you're not concerned with it or you don't care about it. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a lot to ask someone to live in that moment, you know, 24 seven. Yeah. And you know, that reminds me of in um, the book, uh, my, so um, just to set it up, I mean, this book I recently published about the history of the death penalty, um, I focus very closely in one chapter on the experience of a man on death row, um, you know, who, who, and I don't shy away in the book from explaining the murder that he committed. Um, but when I was interviewing him, both in person and through letters, uh, he was, you know, he would talk a little bit about the crime and a little bit about his remorse, but he didn't really want to go deep into it. And that as a reporter, as somebody who, you know, wants to sort of tell his story to the world frustrated me. But then there was a moment in the research where I said, wait a minute, you don't owe me that, you know, that, and that's so presumptuous of me to think that you owe me that, right? And that was a real learning experience for me that I think I've tried to take into other situations that sort of, I, I, after people have been through the sort of horrors of incarceration, like the smallest little, you know, baby gift that some of us can give is the right to not talk about it or the right to to forget about it for a little while and have your identity be more than yeah. just this big defining thing. I mean, I always look at this. So there was this riot in, in South Carolina, the Lee riot and uh, the Lee Correctional Facility in South Carolina. And eight people died. And I just I'll always remember the papers afterwards would just they listed all the people who died, you know, all the incarcerated people who died. And all they put was their crime. And I'm like, man, mm. you know, what I want to know is, you know, I want to hear from their family. Who else? What were they? Who were they? You know, I mean, what else do I want to know about them aside from that? I mean, yes, that's part of their story, but it shouldn't be their whole story. And, you know, I don't want to go on too much about this. Let's, you know, especially since we're, you know, ostensibly talking about your book. So let's let's actually get to the book. Your book starts sure. with with, uh, you know, kind of with Texas Warden Jack Persley bringing the staff of his prison together to shock them with the news that they'll actually have to execute someone. Uh, having lived in Texas for a long time, I feel like this has to have been a long time ago. How long ago was it that executions were still rare in the state of Texas? This shocked me, too. I mean, Texas, like every other state, basically turned away from executions in the 1960s. They just stopped for a number of years and almost disappeared. And then throughout the 70s, there were no executions in Texas. So that anecdote from the book is um, I, I opened the book with it because it's the kind of signal moment that the death penalty is going to return to Texas and return in a big way. And that's in 1982. Um a decade before that, the Supreme Court had ruled that all the death penalty laws in states across the country violated the Constitution, and a bunch of states that wanted to keep the death penalty went back and rewrote their laws. Texas was one of them, and um, there was really this sort of era of, of you know, these cases percolating. People went to death row. Their cases uh, went up through the appeals courts. The Supreme Court would hear them. But there was this question of, like, are executions actually going to happen? Are we going to have the death penalty just be a theory, a, an abstraction? We send people to death row, but we're never actually going to actually execute anyone. Or are we going to really, like, crank up this machinery and have execution chambers and kill people? And that moment in 1982 was uh, so shocking. I wanted to capture how shocking that was uh, for people to say, oh, no, this isn't an abstraction anymore. Uh, we are actually going to kill people. And what are all the costs of that going to be? 
So how did the death penalty go from kind of rarely used to ubiquitous and kind of even associated as part of the Texas identity? You know, I mean, we had, you know, you even mentioned Rick Perry basically vetoing a bill uh, that would have stopped, uh, you know, people with mental incapacitation from being executed. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's good. Um, let me think about the best way to answer that because it's, it's, uh, so in 1982, the death penalty returns uh, to, to Texas, and it and it's the first lethal injection in the country. There have been a few um, executions in the years uh, leading up to to that. But um, uh, to take it back just a little bit and set it up, uh, you know, executions had been a part of American history since the founding of the country. Uh, it, you know, something we inherited from from Britain. But uh, throughout the 1960s, executions basically disappeared largely because uh, civil rights lawyers were doing such a good job of stopping them. And you really saw the kind of political appetite for them go away. Um, there was just this this large downturn. It's also worth keeping in mind that Canada and England and um, much of Europe and Australia were all turning away from the death penalty at the same time. And, uh, but, but America kind of strayed from everyone else, strayed from the pack in 1972, when, as I've said, the Supreme Court, in a case called Furman v. Georgia, rules that all the death penalty laws around the country violate the Constitution because, um, you know, speaking broadly, they're arbitrary, that getting the death penalty has nothing to do with you know, the, the details of the murder you committed, it's just the sort of random, uh, lightning strike. And that's the metaphor that they use. Um, and this produces a huge backlash. So this is the era where the civil rights movement has had a lot of gains. And in the South in particular, there's a lot of anger about that among white Southerners. Uh, there's, that's very tied in and connected to, uh, a sort of simultaneous trend of, uh, the states feeling like Washington, um, in particular the Supreme Court, is is robbing them of the ability to fight crime. In the book, I focus a, a couple of paragraphs on the movie Dirty Harry, which came out in the early '70s <laughs> and captures the zeitgeist of you know this cop who's trying to get the bad guy, but um, you know because he doesn't offer Miranda warnings or he seizes the evidence without a warrant, it all gets thrown out and the and the serial killer goes free. This was the way that people were thinking about crime uh in the early 70s and yeah, there was also uh, the bernie the other end of that was the bernie gets the the vigilante stuff yeah. that's right so there was a sense that there was a sense that if uh the government's not going to going to take care of crime we're going to have to do it ourselves and so you see vigilantes like bernie gets in new york who um i believe shot several young men on a subway uh are you know celebrated culturally right and uh that backlash uh, um, really explodes after the Supreme Court, uh, you know, rules against the death penalty, and 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 the Supreme Court doesn't say the death penalty can never exist again. Just that the current laws are wrong. So this is an invitation to state legislatures to go and and rewrite their laws and bring the death penalty back. And there's a surge of popular support for the death penalty. So as I said, that executions were disappearing in the 60s. The the line of public support, if you look at the graph of public opinion polls, was also going downward. And then right after that Supreme Court decision in 1972, it zooms back up. And the way I phrase it in the book, I think, is that people didn't realize they liked the death penalty until they were deprived of it. And um, then over the course of the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, the death penalty becomes more and more popular. There's more and more death sentences and executions. And Texas is at the center of that. It's responsible for roughly a third of all the executions that happen in those years. Um, and the book explores the reasons for that. There are, um, I would say, I divide it into kind of practical and cultural reasons. The the practical reasons are that um, at every level you had uh, courts that were uh, interested in speeding executions along. There were very conservative courts. Judges were elected. And so they campaigned even on being tough on crime. This was not true in other states necessarily. Um, so, you know, in... In other states, there might be one court here or there or a governor's office that kind of stops the treadmill and and slows down executions. But in Texas, every single one of these institutions was working in lockstep. And Texas also, in 1973, had written a law, as I said, responding to the Supreme Court that was especially punitive, especially harsh, um, made it especially hard for death row prisoners to get certain kinds of claims that would elicit mercy into court. 
and um, uh, the Supreme Court had allowed that 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 state law to stand, and that uh, helped produce um, you know Texas's role as the at the epicenter of executions. All of that then starts to feed into what I consider the other sort of bucket of reasons, which are cultural, and you get a um, kind of a feedback loop where the state's political culture is all about appearing tough on crime. You have, uh, this was true in other Southern states as well, but it was really true in Texas that you'd have, you know, people running for governor and, and debating on the debate stage, who's the, who's the most pro execution, bragging about attending executions, overseeing executions. Um, and, uh, Texans as voters, you know, continually vote these people in, but, but also uh, see it as part of their own state's identity to be very pro-death penalty. And this, I argue in the book, stems from a, a deeper cultural history of, of feeling like we're a frontier state where we take care of our problems, you know, with the noose in the courthouse square rather than uh, through the legal system, that there's a strong tradition of vigilantism and sort of frontier justice. And uh, we can, of course, talk about it further, but but I end up arguing that this is almost a smokescreen for for race and racial inequality and where Alabama and Mississippi, there's a clearer sense that the death penalty is tied up with the history of racially motivated lynchings. In Texas, we kind of have another story that we can tell about the frontier that allows us to kind of paper over the more grisly and troubling reality. There are several uh, kind of central characters in the book, Danilin Racer, Anthony Amsterdam, James Grigson, Elsa Alcala. Would you like to talk about the approach you took to writing the book and also about how you chose kind of these particular folks to represent the different kind of constituencies that you were going to talk about? Absolutely. So um, this was actually, this is actually one of those fun things to talk about for me because it's where the real sort of craft of trying to write the book um, um, comes into to the foreground. And um, I knew I wanted the book to be about people. The point of the book was to show readers that the death penalty is a real life system with real life people in it, um, you know, as opposed to the way the death penalty often gets talked about, which is in very abstract terms. You know, when I was growing up, you would always hear debates about the death penalty framed in terms of, well, the Bible says an eye for an eye, or the Bible says thou shalt not, shalt not kill, or, you know, um, maybe a professor says that it deters crime and another professor says it doesn't. It was always these very abstract ways of talking about the death penalty, but I had come to learn from my reporting that uh, it's actually a system that uh, involves all these different people playing different roles, some of them more um, noble than others. Uh, and everybody who's touched by the system in small and big ways comes out of it with some trauma. And I wanted to kind of foreground the trauma that people experience. So um, knowing that that was the approach, uh, I then had to choose people to be the ones who the reader follows into the world of the death penalty. And this is probably what I spent the most time on at the earlier stages thinking about. Um, and there were a few people who had to play a fairly large role in the book because their role in the Texas death penalty was so outsized. I'm thinking of Anthony Amsterdam, who was the, um, civil rights lawyer who argued these cases at the Supreme Court in the 1970s. Uh, there was um, James Grigson, who is a uh, forensic psychiatrist who got the nickname Dr. Death because he testified for the prosecution at so many of these trials, arguing that people would be dangerous in the future if they were not sentenced to death and basically scaring the jury into giving them death sentences. Um, Johnny Holmes, the longtime district attorney of Harris County, which is Houston, which was um, the epicenter of the death penalty in Texas, which was, of course, itself the center of the death penalty nationally. So Johnny Holmes was like the prosecutor most responsible for for the death penalty's um, leading role in the state. So those people had to be in the book because they played an outsized role. But then I wanted kind of people that the reader maybe had never heard of before who could just speak to the trends and the dynamics. And um, I'll just briefly give a sense of two of them. Um, one is Dana Lynn Reeser, who is a defense lawyer. And through interviewing her in the past, I had learned that uh, before she defended people on death row, she was a young uh, graduate student studying the history of lynching. Um, was working on a master's and then a PhD thesis about why Texas has ha had had so many lynchings, primarily of black men, often accused of rape, you know, in the late 19th, early 20th century. And Reeser really saw the continuum, the connections between that history and the contemporary death penalty. And I thought that, you know, using her story would help readers see those connections. 
And then Reeser, deeper in her career, said, you know, I don't want to just defend people right at the very end when they're on death row and about to be executed and we're doing everything we can at the last minute to stop the execution. I want to go back in the process and stop them from getting sentenced to death in the first place. And she she does that and she shifts over to trials and she manages to convince many prosecutors and juries in really dramatic ways uh, that people don't deserve the death penalty. Her individual clients don't deserve the death penalty. And I thought that that career trajectory, which was very unique, uh, spoke to the way in which the death penalty had declined because um, people weren't going to death row in the first place, because, you know, defense lawyers had become so successful in convincing prosecutors and juries to to not sentence them to death at all. So, uh, and and part of how Dana Lynn Reeser did that was by telling these really rich stories about her clients' lives and their struggles and their traumas, et cetera. And uh, this was sort of the bigger picture of why the death penalty has declined. So she could kind of be the character that people follow to understand those reasons. At the same time, I had a second key character uh, named Elsa Alcala. And I should say, I thought of Dana Lynn Reeser and Elsa Alcala as like the twin sort of uh, trees through the book from which many other people branched off. And um, Elsa was a prosecutor under Johnny Holmes in Harris County, sent several men to death row, was part of the culture of prosecutors that really uh, actively sought the death penalty and celebrated it. And then she, through her you know, um, career, gets appointed by Republican governors up to a series of courts as, and becomes a judge. And finally, when she reaches the highest criminal court in Texas, starts to have a turn where she sees all the problems of the death penalty system and questions what she had done as a young prosecutor and um, comes to question whether we really need the death penalty and whether it's being handed out in a just way. And her um, intellectual inversion narrative, I guess you could call it, her, her, her story felt to me like it tracked in a, in a, interesting way with the larger cultural turn against the death penalty. The ways that different Americans have come to oppose the death penalty are around, you know, the question of whether someone innocent could be executed, the question of whether people deserve mercy, the question of whether intellectually disabled and mentally ill people are getting the death penalty. And these were all things that Elsa confronted as a judge and really grappled with. And so I thought her story could could kind of take readers through that history. Yeah, the Grigson uh, example, I mean, story st- stood out a little bit to me because I remember in high school, I was asked to help some attorneys with a death penalty case. And at one mm. point I met with a prosecutor who told me as a high school kid something that sounded almost exactly like what Mr. Grigson said in the book. Uh, you know, he basically said that all people on death row were expert manipulators, that I shouldn't believe anything anyone told me, you know, stuff like that. Are there, uh, do you think there's such a thing as kind of a, your tough on crime or prosecutorial mindset that somehow has infused the entire system? Is there a way, you know, what, you know, what is the antidote to, to, to the kind of that Grigson, you know, is, is uh racer and Alcala the antidote or is it? The way I thought about it was that you need the racers to get the Alcalas. So, um, you know, change happens in a really big, messy way. And Grigson, um, you know, just to, to lay out quickly what he did. I mean, he was a forensic psychiatrist who was enlisted to testify in Texas death penalty trials. Um, and in Texas, the law said that to be sentenced to death, the jury would have to decide that you're going to be dangerous in the future, that the defendant is is so, you know, um, I don't know, psychopathic or or dangerous that they're going to kill again if they're not sentenced to death. And Grigson became the go-to expert for getting into court and convincing the jury uh, that that the defendant is a psychopath. And in his early days, he actually interviewed the defendant, and then the defense lawyers managed to to stop that by saying this violated their you know um, Miranda rights to to not incriminate themselves. Uh, so then he's kicked out of that, and then he starts just testifying, having not met the defendants, you know, speculatively about um, about them based on what prosecutors tell him. Uh, there was this—it's almost funny. There was this moment where uh, a case involving Grigson goes up to the Supreme Court, and one of the justices says to the says to the prosecutor, 
are you all down in Texas just using Grigson in all these cases? Because his name just keeps coming up in these, <laughs> in these cases, and, and it's a big state, right? And, and uh, you know, the, obviously the prosecutor couldn't answer really, but, but it really was, there was an era where Grigson was so dominant, um, especially in, I almost marked it off geographically. It was like Dallas and some of the smaller towns down along the main um, highway that connects Dallas to Austin. Uh, he was less popular in, in Houston for, for various reasons, but um, you know, his mindset of seeing everyone who commits a crime as uh, you know, reduced to the worst thing they've ever done. And that, that worst thing they've ever done being um, you know, definitive about their person, the definitive thing about their personality. So there's no way they're going to stop killing people uh, if they don't get the death penalty that did suffuse our political culture. And, you know, I, I think Elsa Alcala is an interesting case study because it's not like she grew up as a tough on crime person. It's not like she grew up wanting to be a police officer or prosecutor. It's something she fell into after college um, as a young, ambitious, very smart person. And so I think because the political culture rewarded a kind of tough on crime view, it it meant that if you were young and not really sure of how you felt about the world, uh, it was very easy to kind of fall in with that mindset and and be swept up in it. Um, I told a story of how Elsa Alcala gets a death sentence for a man and then her boss gives her a, a sort of a commemorative pen that's shaped like a syringe to celebrate her victory in this death penalty case, which to you know our 2021 20, reading eyes is horrifying, but at the time uh, was seen as sort of a fun, silly celebration of the death penalty. Yeah. And, I, I, I was just about to say the word horrifying when you said horrifying, but yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but I want readers, I, I did my best and I don't know that I totally succeeded at this, but I try to do it in interviews at the very least to sort of get people to see that it's horrifying to our eyes now, but try to remember who, what you thought in the eighties and nineties crime was high. You were maybe scared. There was, you know, there's a lot of people now who believe in criminal justice reform who were also voting for tough on crime stuff in the nineties. And I want people to think about that a little and reckon with their own culpability in the system. Um, you know, so, I mean, because, you know, I mean, Elsa Alcala's boss who gave her that pen was an elected official, you know, who campaigned and a majority of Houstonians over and over and over again said they wanted to be their top prosecutor. So then Dana Lynn Reeser comes along and at the time that she starts defending men on death row and arguing basically that they're not the worst thing they've ever done and that there's humanity to them and that they should be spared the death penalty she and her cohort of lawyers are seen as these fringe, horrible outsiders. Um, I dwelled on this a lot in the book because I found it so fascinating, again, to for 2021 readers. Uh, I mean, now we all celebrate, you know, Brian Stevenson, his book and the movie Just Mercy. But Brian Stevenson was also a part of Daniel and Reacher's sort of cohort of lawyers in the in the early 90s who were working against a political culture that just saw them as not as bad as maybe death row prisoners they're defending, but almost as bad, right? And and these defense lawyers named their their you know little civil rights firms really vague things like the Texas Resource Center or the Texas Defender Service or the Gulf Region Advocacy Center, um, and and part of that was because uh, if they said we are the anti death penalty defense center, they would get bomb threats, they would get graffitied, right? there was a real hatred and a real sense that criminals are out to get us and these people want to help the criminals. Um, but Dana Lynn Reeser believes what she believes and works very hard up against that, that cultural you know, moment and slowly chips away at it and slowly manages to convince jury after jury that her clients don't deserve the death penalty. And you, I, I was really fascinated to see the way that her sorts of arguments um, she doesn't invent this. She's just very good at presenting it. You know, they they slowly trickle into uh, more and more defense lawyers' writings and their appeals and more and more of their presentations in court. And then judges slowly start to get uh, convinced by it. And so where early in Elsa Alcala's career, she sees uh, these people who committed terrible crimes as evil. She even calls one of them evil in a trial. Uh, by the end of her career, she is uh, speaking with tremendous sympathy of these men on death row and um, 
and really understands that they cannot be reduced to the worst thing they've ever done and believes that they should be spared the death penalty. And, and it's a slow process. I mean, I, I saw a Facebook post by Elsa just the other day where she said, you know, a few years ago, I made an exception for mass casualty terrorism cases like the Boston bombing or, or Dylan Roof or something, but I don't even make that exception anymore. I'm just against the death penalty. And so you see there's this sort of uh, moment by moment year by year drift away from the death penalty, but it's the Danal and Reesers who were committed to these ideas all along, even when they were unpopular, that kind of convince the more sort of centrist or um, kind of mainstream representatives like Elsa Alcala to a new vision. And so I wanted the book to kind of capture that really messy way in which change happens. You mentioned um, this before a little bit, but another ongoing theme of the book is the largely undiscussed trauma of people who come into contact with or work in the system. Did you find a lot of the people on both sides of these disputes or all sides of these disputes from correctional officers to prosecutors uh, had ways of dealing with the trauma of being part of the state machinery of death or is it largely untreated? How does it come out? It seemed like there was a lot of pain involved, even if you weren't, you know, the family member or the person who was executed. There's so much pain. Yeah. Uh, and you know, so early in the book, Elsa Alcala as a, as a young prosecutor, she sentences several, uh, men to death, um, or convinces juries to sentence them to death, I should say. And one of them is a 17-year-old who committed a really atrocious murder. And um, he uh, killed a young man and a young woman. And the young woman was the best friend of the young man's twin sister. Uh, I I said that confusingly. But basically, there's a woman named Allison Vickers in the book who who survives this crime and loses her best friend and her twin brother. And then some number of months after that, she has another brother who takes his own life because of the trauma of, of these murders. And Elsa, I think, bears some trauma from being so close to, to that, hearing about it and getting to know Allison Vickers, they become um, friends even beyond after the trial. Um, years and years later, they're still sending each other letters and, and, and talking on the phone. And I think that Elsa fuels the trauma of the system into fighting for what she perceives to be justice, which at the time and in that place was getting the death penalty for a 17 year old, which again, in 2021 seems um, problematic. It, it seems problematic to Elsa Alcala herself now, but at the time was the the politics and, and was the way that people understood justice. So um, she, I think, fuels her trauma into fighting and feeling like she can deliver this death penalty as a, almost a service to the victims who are left behind by this tremendous murder. Um, the defense lawyers are traumatized by uh, witnessing their clients' executions. I got the sense that there's a little bit of camaraderie between them, but a lot of them burned out. A lot of people, I, you know, sometimes it was actually hard to find some of the defense lawyers I wanted to interview from the early 90s because they're not defense lawyers anymore. You know, their phone numbers aren't on the state bar website because they left this traumatizing world of, of, of losing their clients to execution and became chefs and uh, um, psychiatrists and um, a pastor in one case. Um, so it was a little harder to find some of those people. Um, and then, uh, you know, the family members go through their own trauma. And I think what's worth saying about that is that sort of it doesn't play out the same way for any two families. So I interviewed family members of murder victims who were very for the death penalty and even witnessed an execution and felt like it was healing in certain ways to them. They may have been traumatized by re-traumatized by years and years of appeals. But once the execution happened, they felt like it was a positive thing. And I wanted to include that in the book because that did happen. And it, I think I think if had I set out to write sort of an explicitly anti-death penalty um, polemic, I would have like naturally kind of left stories like that out. But I wanted to capture why the death penalty was seen as a good thing and, and um, as a service to, to people who were undergoing trauma. And it did seem to be the case for this one woman. Uh, but at the same time, I also met family members of murder victims who were re-traumatized by the execution or who felt in the years after the execution, like it wasn't actually what should have happened. It really wasn't justice. They don't feel well served by the system. 
Uh, you also have family members of victims who feel who never supported the death penalty and actually felt traumatized by prosecutors and elected officials um, and journalists jerking them around by expecting them to conform to certain narratives about pain and retribution and forgiveness that they didn't want to be a part of. And uh, they're really they felt um, uh, manipulated and re-traumatized by the system. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, I knew going into the book that I wanted to try to find um, executioners, corrections officers that actually worked on executions. I had the sort of very obvious hypothesis that they would have some trauma. They do, but as I've said, it's sort of different for each and every one of them and I uh, can change over the years. Um, they found, I think, some healing in telling themselves that they were doing a job that's unpleasant and hard, but that someone has to do and there is a dignity in being the one who takes it on. But others of them burned out and had panic attacks and really fell apart from the work. So I think what I learned about trauma in working on this book is that the same traumatic um, event can affect every single person who comes into contact with it very differently. You end the book uh, with the death penalty kind of largely on, on the decline, but since then the Supreme Court has taken a pretty hard right on the death penalty. And as you know, pretty much everyone knows before leaving office, the former president went on kind of an execution spree at the federal level where there hadn't been executions uh, for 50 years, basically, before that. Uh, so where do you really think, you know, in retrospect, after all this, where do you really think we are as a country on this issue now? I think, but I... It, you know, when the Trump executions first started up, I thought, oh, no, it seems like the death penalty is is rearing back up again. But then I had to remind myself that, uh, you know, it's a massive system with a lot of players. And so the president is one player. The DOJ is a player. The Supreme Court is an important player, but not the only one. And even with the Supreme Court's turn um you know, towards uh, ruling against death row prisoners, and even with uh, Trump's executions, the decline is still happening and it's real. Um, you know, most of the death penalty doesn't happen at the federal level. It happens in the states. And uh, Virginia is on the cusp of abolishing the death penalty. There are bills to abolish it moving through legislatures in Wyoming, a very conservative state, and Ohio. Um, you're even seeing... Uh, bills brought by Republican legislators not to abolish it, but to chip away at it in various ways to limit it in Texas, in Oklahoma, um, in Ohio, North Carolina, Kentucky. So I'm watching it across the country and there is these legislative bills and then the number of new death sentences and executions continues to drift down year by year. Any given year might have a slight spike, but uh, it's really still on the decline. I mean, Texas sentenced uh, almost 50 people to death in a single year 20 years ago, and uh, in 2019 sentenced, I want to say, four people to death. So those numbers are, are really going down. And the coronavirus is a, as in so many areas of, of, of our country, you know, just an anomaly year. I mean, there were very few death sentences and executions uh, because of the coronavirus. Uh, and that doesn't really tell you anything beyond 2020. But and we'll sort of watch it this year. But I, I get the sense that um, if anything, Trump's zeal for the death penalty actually in a, in, in a certain way paved the way for it. It's the quickening of its demise, because I think that all those executions actually led a lot of people who hadn't thought about the issue in a while, who had, maybe hadn't thought about it since the 90s to think about it again and to, to question whether they were still for it. And much like Elsa Alcala in my book, uh, you know, to, to realize that the views they maybe held 20 years ago um, aren't the views they hold today. And they're troubled by, you know, Lisa Montgomery, the woman executed under Trump, despite her history of sexual abuse and um, mental illness, or Brandon Bernard, who was executed despite playing a very minor role in the crime, or Orlando Hall, who was executed um, having been sentenced by an all-white jury. You know, these these stories really circulated uh, much more than they would have 20 years ago. And I can see how that gave a certain momentum to the efforts to abolish the death penalty in Virginia and now in Congress. So I think we're still going to see a downswing, but you know, history always proves us wrong over and over again. So I'm not in the business of predictions. <laughs> uh, well, I hope your prediction is right either way. <laughs> uh, I'm also asking people this season, if there's any criminal justice, I know we're definitely going to talk more, a little bit more about your book, but um 
If there are any criminal justice related books they might recommend to others, do you have any favorites? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, are you asking like new books or, or just generally ones from my just generally opinion? or new, whatever, whatever you feel. Sure. Like. I mean, the book that I feel like I always tell people about um, was um, a book called among the lowest of the dead, which came out in the nineties and was about the death penalty in Florida and was hugely uh, manages to make this big, complicated death penalty system really come to life through individual pros of people and their emotional struggles struggles and their traumas and the way in which the death penalty can take on a life of its own as a culture war issue that produces a kind of um, sort of circus atmosphere. So uh, that is a really good book. Um, I just finished reading Tangled Up in Blue. Uh, I'm, I'm actually Brooks. reading that this book too. Book that I was... Oh, great. Yeah. I, I, what do you think? So far, it's great. It's very well written. Yeah. Very well written. And um, I was asked to write a review of that book for the New York Times Book Review, which was a big honor for me. And uh, um, devoured the book in a few days. And um, so Rosa Brooks is, a, of course, a Georgetown law professor who has written many books, but took a kind of sabbatical to train to become what's called a reserve police officer, which means it's like a not full time volunteer police officer in Washington, D.C., and she just writes so clearly and thoughtfully about the way police day to day are thrust into all of these chaotic situations that are the product of all of these unresolved policy problems in America, poverty, um, domestic violence, mental illness, and they have to navigate them um, with minimal, I mean, there's training, but boy, does she make it seem minimal. And uh <laughs> <laughs> and it gave me tremendous, it just felt like a very refreshing uh, uh, way of thinking about policing because so much about policing has become a kind of culture war fight, much as it used to be for the death penalty, where it's like either you back the blue and wave a blue line flag in your yard, or you want to defund and abolish the police. And both those sides feel like if you're anywhere in between those two poles, that you're a traitor to the movement or something. And Rosa Brooks just sort of dispatches with all that and says, okay, here's what it's actually like to be a police officer. And that just felt like the necessary thing for moving us forward. So where can people find your book? So my book is for sale basically everywhere books are sold. Um, I've been really, probably the most exciting thing about writing a book uh, that I didn't expect is that people have like texted me pictures of it on sale at their local independent bookstores. Uh, so if you have an independent bookstore in your city, I would suggest looking there. You can also buy it on bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. It's also at all the usual, you know, Amazon, Target, um, Barnes and Noble, Walmart websites as well. Uh, so really it's everywhere you can buy a book. I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked but did not? Honestly, I can't think of any. I think you asked them all. Uh, I wanted to just say one more thing, which sure. is we've been talking about um, how one thing that I struggled with in this book was how to make it so that it felt like the death penalty was connected to the rest of the justice system. It can seem like this one almost exotic, very rare punishment. Um, but I came to see how the punitiveness of the death penalty kind of made the punitiveness of the rest of the system easier for people to swallow. So for example, if you have the death penalty, sentencing somebody to 60 years doesn't isn't the worst thing. And so it doesn't seem as bad. It seems like the lenient option. But if you don't have the death penalty and you have life without parole and that becomes the worst, then the more lenient option is, you know, a shorter sentence. And so I've, I've come to see that the death penalty kind of like validated the punitiveness of the system. And uh, um I, but I think that if we get rid of the death penalty tomorrow, there's still a ton of work to be done. And we've talked about this earlier with the poetry magazine um, kerfuffle. That was a weird word to use. I'm sorry. The, the <laughs> fiasco <laughs> coming out of that poetry magazine publishing um, somebody who committed a, a terrible crime. Uh, even if we abolish the death penalty, there's still a lot of kind of cultural work to be done in terms of seeing people with a merciful eye. And so I hope the book contributes to that in a small way. And the Marshall Project certainly uh, aspires to do that and to just increase the amount of mercy in the world. So thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for doing this. Really enjoyed having you on the podcast. And I love when people ask me questions, too. So that was good as well. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, awesome. Well, thank you. And um, yeah, I hope you have a great rest of the day. All right, you too. Thanks again. And now, my take. I wasn't kidding when I was talking to Maurice. 
I am often exhausted by being asked to be accountable to people that I did not harm. On the other hand, I can never finish being accountable to the people that I did harm. This seems like a good time for me to talk, to take a few minutes and to talk about what accountability means to me. I don't wish harm on people who do wrong. I wish healing, honest reflection, accountability, and change. I hope people come back better, that they come back with the tools necessary and committed to not harming other people. I think many times people think of accountability as sort of just a word or as a stand-in for simply saying, I am responsible, or uh, to say I did wrong and take responsibility for it verbally. But to me, it is about a way of living, about working to always help and not hurt people. It's about living the number one request of victims of crime, and that request is that you don't ever harm anyone again. That said, I am sometimes but not always surprised when people fail, even spectacularly. It certainly doesn't make it okay and doesn't mean that you turn a blind eye to harm. And I'm always thrilled when people succeed, and so many people do. We have to find the problematic parts of who we have become and do the hard work to address those problems. We have to live our message as advocates, and we have to make sure our public and private lives are equally admirable. I often think of the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas when I think of accountability. And how I think of, of, of what that means and how what accountability means, it means we have a radical responsibility to the other and radical responsibility to hospitality to the other, to every single person we come into contact with, a promise to do no harm. This radical hospitality and responsibility to the other is part of, of, of accountability. It's a duty that never ends that we have to remain concerned with at all times. It's an active duty and a responsibility that we have to live. In other words, accountability is not about a moment in time. It's about a way of relating, an ongoing orientation, an obligation as a human being. Once you accept accountability, you do not stop being accountable, and you're responsible personally for failures. I know so many people who I care about who have failed. And so many people I know who I care about who have been harmed. And I myself have done harm and been harmed. It can be emotionally and physically terrifying and exhausting, but there is nothing more important than being accountable, in my humble opinion. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, Ann Espo for helping with our transcripts and social media images, and Alex Mayo, who helps with our website. Make sure and add us on social media and share our posts across your networks. Also thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.